Continuous improvement comes in lots of different flavors and styles. I'm Bella Engelbach, and I'm inviting you to journey with me to the edges of lean. Episode 114, designed for Six Sigma with Chris Stokes. When I say that there are many different flavors and styles of continuous improvement, Designed for Six Sigma is exactly the type of style and flavor variation I am thinking of. Product development is hard, it's expensive, and almost every company has a graveyard full of product development failures. Chris Stokes teaches organizations and people the principles of Design for Six Sigma, and he says that product development success takes rethinking many of our assumptions about what we know, how we know it, and most importantly, identifying our own hidden assumptions. He joined me at the Edges of Lean to share his knowledge with us. Dr. Chris Stokes, welcome to the Edges of Lean. Thank you very much for having me. I'm uh, excited to be here and uh, happy to talk about uh, Six Sigma processes. Great. So, Chris, can you start out by telling us about yourself? Give us give us a little introduction to you, to you, what you do, and how you got to do what you're doing. So today uh, I'm a principal scientist at Geisis Ventures. We do uh, material science consulting. Um, we do R&D management consulting to help people make their projects faster, uh, better. Um, we do extinguish fires for manufacturing. When uh, you're kind of at, your, at the end of your rope, we come in and take another look at it. And we also do product development work. Um, I also have a... Uh, a soft spot in my heart for teaching. So uh, one of the things I do uh, because I love it is I teach uh, uh, Lean Six Sigma and Design for Six Sigma uh, for Air Academy Associates. Oh, that's cool. That's great. So how did you come into this? What was what was your career path? Where did you start? So, so that's a great question. Um, I uh, have a PhD in organic chemistry from MIT. And I will say that uh, none of the lessons I've learned from, you know, the Six Sigma practices, I learned in school, right? Um, and uh, after graduate school, I went to a startup company, and I was still sort of doing things the hard way. Um, we had an exit, which was nice, um, but I moved on from there to, um, you know, from making molecules for uh, oil and gas field chemicals to uh, processing polymers for battery applications. Um, I worked at a company called CellGuard, and that's where I was introduced first to uh, design for Six Sigma. Um, and, and so you came, you came into it through DFSS first before, um, before sort of the, the um, manufacturing process type of Six Sigma? Interesting. Yeah, absolutely. I had, um, I had a boss that, there that worked for Delphi, and he had gotten training in DFSS for Delphi or at Delphi, and he brought in um, uh, Air Academy, which is how I I, I met uh, these characters, um, to it, to teach us how the DFSS process goes. And DFSS is, um, you know, for for listeners, is designed for Six Sigma. Right. Wow. So that's fascinating to me because a lot of people whether they are 
you're doing um, lean product development or uh, design for Six Sigma, they learn the manufacturing side first. They learn, they learn that, you know, how do I make it consistent, um, you know, and effective and efficient on the manufacturing side? And then they come into product development and product development is different. Um, and sometimes people have a really hard time grasping that, right? You know, that, um, that, Product development is really different. There are lots of times in product development that you need to have the type of, of repeatable, um, efficient, effective process that you need in manufacturing in order to accomplish product development. But that process from, from ideation through to putting a product on the market is not the same as running a plant. And and so I just it's just to me, it's fascinating to meet people who started kind of in, at the other end of it. And I'd love to know, so what kind of insights, what were the, some of the things that grabbed you immediately when you started to learn about this? So uh, I will say the the biggest thing that I took away and, um, you know, the way that my boss implemented this is he started out with a sort of champions course where it was really getting upper management on the same level. And he uh, very astutely, recognized that I would sort of resonate with it very strongly. Uh -huh. So he brought me in as sort of like a, a mid-level champion as well. And, you know, we got um, a uh, a great demo of the, you know, the catapult, right? Um, or as, as Air Academy likes to say, the statapult, um, where once you do the sort of designed experiment in a predictive way and you can, you know, you do this this thing where you shoot the ball at, at different angles and you record the values. It's it's purely empirical, right? And me coming from a, a place like MIT, where it's, you know, you've got to build everything on first principles, coming to this empirical approach was really sort of striking to me at the power of it, because every time I've done sort of first principles things, the error bars are huge, right? Because the real world is... Believe the real it or not, world is—it's not like a lab. Well, labs can be messy too, but it's not—it's—it's it's even messier than a lab. Yeah, absolutely. And so, um, you know, when I saw that, just by doing a few experiments in a very methodical way, you could number one test a lot of variables at once. Um, number two, eliminate variables very uh, effectively, and number three, see interaction effects which end up being really the 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 core part of these designed experiments is these interaction effects that you can't really get in any other way um and the moment it clicked with me is when you know we put our predictive model in and um you know he said all right um i want it at at 100 inches um tell me you know or, or what was it? It was, you tell me where you're going to put it and I'll put the cup here. Um, give me the the 95% confidence interval and I'm going to figure it out. You pull the, the lever back, the ball shoots out and it lands in the cup like 95% of the time. Um, and, and the, I can't express the excitement that I had and that my students have every time they see that, wow, I can kind of predict the future with a 95% certainty. With, with you using, using designed experiments, 
Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. But I, and I think that, and, and I think that the thing that is hard about this for, for a lot of people is the idea of doing experiments at all, right? So as you said, um, you know, the well, if we already know this information or we think we know this information or we, we think we can predict the future, then we're not going to do a lot of experiments. We're going to go ahead and design based on what we know. And, I, and for those of you who are listening, I'm doing air quotes, what we know or what we think we know or what we hope will happen. Um, and then as you get further along in the product development process, you learn that you were not correct, right? And then that yeah. creates... Um, a huge amount of expense and rework and sometimes, you know, complete cancellation of projects because of those errors that are made, those thought errors that are made early in the process. Um, and um, so I'd be interested to know, Chris, when you're working with people, um, do you find that there are people for whom their own certainty gets in the way of being able to do this? A hundred percent. You know, one of the things that I... Uh, also did is I, I moved on from being a student to being an integrator. I actually brought Air Academy in as the boss and uh -huh. trained um, uh, my uh, product development engineers, um, my um, the manufacturing engineers, and I even brought in uh, our marketing people because um, the the whole design for Six Sigma process, you know, um, it it's actually follows, you know, instead of DMAIC, it follows the IDOV process where it's identify, design, optimize, and validate. Um, I think there's actually another uh, another sort of acronym some people use that follows- DMAV-V. DMAV-V, yes, that's right. Yes, um, yeah. So I, I, I kind of like the IDOV approach because um, it actually, it actually integrates into a lot of stage gate processes very effectively. Um, so you can you can check off the boxes on am I doing things properly in advance? But um, I had one employee who after I did a uh, after I did a designed experiment on uh, one of our products, he goes, yeah, we already knew that. Um, and I go, sure. But did you know that if you increase the temperature five degrees, you get twice the value? Or did you just know that you get more, right? So having that that level of, you know, where where does the product fall off the cliff? Because they all do, uh -huh. right? You you push it to the edge and then it falls off a cliff. How close to the edge can we get and make sure our customers uh, uh, can actually use it in their process? And that's actually how you could drive crop a lot of cost out of your development process, right? Because if you know where those limits are, you know, you yep. know, how thin you can take a material or, you know, you know, I don't know, depending on what you're doing in, in the pharmaceutical industry, it would be, it would be something like, you know, what is the um, uh, stability, you know, of, of a product, you know, how, how Absolutely. far can you take the stability and, 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 allow, and extend that shelf life, uh, you know, so that, um, you know, that, that the longest shelf life is is better for customers. So, but you don't know until you've done the experiments, right? You if, don't. Um, and that so that takes me to another question, Chris, which is about what about documentation? Because I think this is the other thing that's really hard um, mm -hmm. is once you've learned something. You know, we always say in, well, we say in lean 
or I say it lean anyway, once you learn something, it's a, it's wasteful to relearn it, right? Once you once you've done the right experiments and you know they're good experiments and you have and you have the data, it's very wasteful to relearn it. But we do that over and over and over again. A lot of that is because we're not very good at documenting or sharing the information. And I think it's getting harder actually with um, yeah. you know all of the different places that we could store information. So so how do you approach that? That's a that's a really great question. And, uh, you know, I don't know that there's one good answer because every organization has, as you mentioned, one of a thousand ways of documenting things, even within SharePoint. Right. I I found that in in our own usage of um, of teams and SharePoint and OneDrive, that they all get stored in different places, even though it's sort of in the cloud, in the same one cloud. Um, but one of the most effective ways I've seen at sharing these things, because at the end of the day, DFSS is really focused on connecting your customer needs and their, you know, what their desires are, their critical to customer requirements to a transfer function, right? You want to be able to say, if I make this product with these properties, how does that map to uh, providing value to the customer as they've defined it. And that's a whole other issue of, you know, customers ask you uh, what they want, not what they need. Um, so sometimes that's the that's the feedback loop, right? Um, but if you are de de developing these sort of predictive mathematical equations, you know, if you're good at it, you can say, Hey, if I can give, you know, for a, a glue, maybe, right? If I can give a peel value of of X, then we know that's going to meet the customer demands. And how do we get to that? Oh, we have to turn the dials on the machine to, you know, A, B, and C. Um, now, transferring that knowledge to manufacturing is is where the documentation I think happens the best, um, and. Mm -hmm. One of the the best tools I've found is um, when I was implementing this uh, as a as a boss, I basically said, "Look, at the end of every project, you need to have a DFSS scorecard, right? And the scorecard is really a process capability. Um, so it's it's made up of, you know, the the process, the performance." and the uh, the raw materials uh, factors. So if I'm working with a plastic, right, I've got to know sort of, you know, what's the what's the performance of the product at the end? Um, it's got, it has specifications on it, or it has, it doesn't have specifications. It has a, uh, you know, um, the variability around that uh, based on however you did that in the, the production or in the development process. Um, the raw materials coming in, how does viscosity affect these things, right? What what are the normal types of materials you see and and those material properties? And then, you know, what are your yields coming out? That, that also takes, doesn't it, looking, when you talk about customer, you, you, you know, obviously we're talking about the person at the, uh, people at the end of the process who are going to use the product. Um, but customer 
could also include manufacturing, right? You need to know something about manufacturing. Um, actually, a lot about, I think, a lot about manufacturing in order to be able to design something that is going to be easy to bring into a plant. So your tech transfer for is not a nightmare, right? Um, and if you need to to build or qualify new equipment, that you've got plenty of advance notice to get yeah. that done because they have their own processes for getting yep. that done, right? So. So does that mean that you say to, to folks who are working in, in uh, research and development that they need to go and spend time in manufacturing? How do you handle that? That's a, so I actively encourage people to, um, you know, make friends with the operators uh -huh. because the operators know the machines inside and out. You know, I, I often say that, uh, you know, they've, uh, they've forgotten more than I'll ever know about the process. So it's it's really important to know the machine that you're working on um, or know the process um, and also to know the people, right? Because it, it's not just the, the process or it's not just the machine that makes the variability. It's not just the materials that make the variability. I Every time I walk into a training session, we start talking about variability and I go, all right, so let's talk about variability. Do you see variability between day shift and night shift? And everybody laughs every single time because, um, you know, it's it's kind of the the thing is is night shift changes differently because there's not, um, you know, there's a little bit different culture. Um, you know, the fewer people, uh, less management, maybe less management. It's it's just a, a different system altogether sometimes yeah yeah so so it sounds like the folks that you're that you're working with usually know at least that much right yep yep yeah. um and and so you know it's it's good to know sort of the historical how does the process work how does it uh, behave and where are the pitfalls yeah yeah. And what can you learn from those folks in the plant too? I think that's really important because as you said, you know, they've forgotten more than um, sometimes the the folks in, in development have even had a chance to learn. Um, yep, absolutely. Um, you know, I, I know that um, there were times as a, as a research scientist um, in a former job where there was an operator, his name was Reggie and he, you know, I, I love this guy. He made me successful uh, because I would I would take my my, you know, run sheet for a trial. And I said, all right, Reggie, here's the deal. This is what I think is going to happen. How should I change this? And he's like, don't worry, Chris, I got you taken care of. Um, on the other hand, if you know, I've I've seen and I've I've coached and I'd mentored engineers who don't sort of build that relationship with the operators. And it's it's very much a, all right, you put it down. This is what we're running. It doesn't matter if it's uh, if it turns out to be garbage or not. This is this is what it is. So at the end of the day, like everything else, it's about people and relationships mm -hmm. um, as much as it is about data. Right, right. And it's also, I think, difficult sometimes in today's world, the plant may be on the other side of the world, right? It's not possible. You may not be able to walk across the parking lot and, uh, you know, go have a chat with somebody. Uh, you you know, you have to get on a plane and that's, you know, that's difficult and expensive and 
absolutely and hard to do so so but that doesn't mean that you couldn't learn as much as you can or at least attempt to learn as much as you can yeah yep. Yeah. So when, when can you take us through um, your acronym for Design for Six Sigma again and give us a little detail on each step? Yep, absolutely. So um, the acronym that we use is um, IDOV, which is I stands for identify. Now, identify is really getting the customer requirements. Um, you know, how strong does this have to be? Um, how how many do I have to have? What's the, what are the qualities? Um, really, what are the, the, you know, CTCs or CTQs, critical to customer or critical uh -huh. to quality uh, properties of these particular um, widgets or process? Um, and it, it's important to get this right and to have that with, you know, have, that relationship with the customer so that they can they can give you a little bit closer to what they need versus what they want. And so, um, you know, I've made the mistake of sort of not asking a deep enough question and I deliver a product that meets all their specifications and they go, eh, this doesn't really work the way I want it to. Um, and it's because, you know, I didn't, I didn't ask that that next question of, you know, so what are you actually doing with this? Um, you know, they have a list. They think that they know what they want, um, but there's there's always these unspoken assumptions when they're communicating these needs uh, to other people. They sort of automatically assume that you know what the substrates are that they're using or, you know, what the... Um, you know, intended temperature range is. Um, but it you have to ask these questions and drop, you know, drop drop the assumption that you know everything, right? Right. You know right. nothing. Yeah, it's, what, it, it's what we were talking about before. It's certainty that um that causes a lot of problems. Uh, that yeah. Yeah. And so again, does that call for, you know, spending time with the customer i think you know certainly there's this this idea well you know i'll bring the customer in we'll sit at a conference table we'll talk about the thing um but that's really different from what you know in lean we'd we'd say like you know go to the actual place go to the gamba go and actually you know watch what the customer is doing spend time with customers um yep uh you know so you could start start to get those but isn't that also a place where you could actually start experimentation um where you could start with, you know, web developers do, you know, try this version versus this this version. This is how does this work for you? Um, which is, yeah, um, yeah. yeah. Do I you mean, do that? You can, I, absolutely. You know, I, I think it's good to sort of target in a little bit early. Be like, all right, you know, I'm not sure if this is the solution or this is the solution. You you kind of do a little A B test if you've got the relationship and if it doesn't cost them too much to right. do. Yeah. You know, I've I've worked in the battery industry before and like a full set of testing is is sometimes 18 months and you know, hundreds of thousands of dollars. So it's not as as easy to do some of those tests as it is, hey, you know, give me your fabrics. I'm going to bond a couple of them up together and we'll see how it goes. We'll see how it works. But, the, yeah, but you're still, you're st when you're doing that, you're still getting the something that's real up, 
about what they're doing as opposed to imagining with with our own personal certainty about exactly. what they what they're doing. All right. So that's identify. What what comes next? Next is design, right? So the idea there is you start using things like, you know, tools like House of Quality, right? To mm-hmm. map what the the CTCs or CTQs, the critical to customer uh uh properties are. So if if I say, you know, um uh I want um I'm trying to find, you know, I I want this to be um you know white. Um I want it to be light. Um I want it to, you know, have a long battery life. He's what holding those for actual- those of you who are listening, he's holding up an Apple mouse. Oh. Yeah, sorry. I'm <laughs> I'm holding up I'm holding up an, an Apple mouse. Uh thank you for yeah. the reminder. Yeah. Um but the um oh and at the end of the day, like the unspoken thing that I didn't right. say was that I want it to connect to my my uh computer and control everything, right? I automatically assumed that that was the base function. Um so if we talk about things like, you know, uh uh Kano's matrix we can talk about, you know, um, uh, the expected, the uh, delighters, and and sort of the uh, the need to have the 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 must the haves. Must, the, the must haves, yeah, yeah, um, yeah. Uh, and some of those think, you can make assumptions about, right? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So and then and then the thing about the Apple Mouse is that's unstated. In everything you said, which is you know the Apple thing, is that it's extremely elegant, right? And and that may not be something a customer is going to say to you. I really want it to be aesthetically elegant. And then you know, well, what does that mean? How you know how do we do that? Exactly. Like that's <laughs> those are those are probably the worst ones to have because you know I can't I can't put a measurement on that, right? Um, yeah. or I can, but it's, it's, it's so subjective. Um, in fact, one of the things that I, in, I work in the textile world a lot. And one of the things when you're, you're gluing textiles together is that you want this, this quality called hand. It has to have mm. a nice hand or it has a bad hand. Now so that's how you, that's how it feels. That's how it feels. It's how it stretches it's the weight. It's a lot of, you know, very subjective measurements. And there are people that have made machines that sort of are supposed to give you some sort of, of uh, mechanism of that. But uh, one of the clever things that one of my employees did as she was testing these things out and she decided to say, all right, well, let's do sort of, a, you know, I, I want to rank these. I want to have some sort of, of, quantitative data. So she made a bunch of samples and, you know, they were looking for sort of like elasticity and just drape and, and these sorts of qualitative uh, assessments. And she took it around to about 20 people and did a pairwise comparison on it where she just, you know, brute force said is a, or, you know, it's like, it's like the, uh, the eye test, right? Yeah. I test a or B, B or C, C or D. A or B, A or C, right? And what was brilliant about it is that, you know, by having a a decent amount of sample, right? You can't have infinite sample here. um, She was able to get some level of ranking of different types of properties, whether it's stretch, um, whether it's it's softness on, um, on these materials 
on very qualitative measurements, right? Um, so it was it was brilliant. It it turned out amazingly well. I I was I was skeptical on on how concise the data would be, but there were a couple things that really were like these are the things that that this this uh, corresponds to. So it sounds to me what like what you're saying is that there's sort of an intermediate step between the I and the D, which is if you're going to design to a, a customer need or desire or design to quality, you have to have enough information to know how am I going to measure that? How am I, how am I going to, yep. and if I can't measure it, how do I, how am I going to evaluate that? Um, so it's a, it's like, it's a designing a test for the test, which is really interesting because that was, you know, when the Wright brothers were, were building their aircraft, that wasn't one of the things they had to do was they some of the things that they needed to measure, there was no actual way to measure them. So they had to design the design the instrument to measure before they could actually design to that um to that uh, to their need as customers who did not want to die on their their first test flight. So um <laughs> Yeah, and and you know, that's actually a large part of doing application, you know, new applications is how do I test this to give a relevant result? You know, every mm -hmm. material has sort of a standard set of of um, data that comes with it, a set of properties, and those don't always immediately translate to the application that they want to be used on. Yeah. So that, yeah, there might be a way to measure something that's like it, but it's not exactly right. So you, yep. you have to yeah. build a new tool first. Wow. So okay. So so you're gonna you have identify, you have design, and then O is optimize. Is that what? O is indeed optimize. So and tell us about that. So optimized is um, the one where we start doing a lot of experiments, right? So in the case of the, you know, uh, in the case of the mouse, right? Um, this is where we're starting to link things like lightweight. You know, I want it to be lightweight. Well, what does that mean? Well, it, it means sort of the sum of the components that you put into it, um, you know, what are the heaviest components? What are the lightest components? And how do those affect um, in terms of, say, like a, a glue, right? I, I spent a lot of time with glue. Um, it probably explains <laughs> a lot about me, but um, the, you know, the parameters around like hot melt adhesives, um, where you use heat to actually glue it together, um, it's time, temperature, and pressure. Those are the three factors every single time. And they're dependent on the type of glue. They're dependent on the type of substrate that you're gluing together. And um, optimize is it, you know, this is a, this is a great one for optimize because you can kind of keep the pressure the same. You can take that variable out sometimes, sometimes you got to throw it in, but time and temperature they're both nonlinear functions with anything that I do is pretty much nonlinear. So um, using a nonlinear approach, um, you can get what is equivalent to like a topographic map of your process, right? So so not a, not a two-dimensional li limit curve, but actually something that has more of a, a three-dimensional component to it? Yeah, absolutely. You can, it, what, what I love to see is because if you do, if you know what you're doing and uh, you've done enough experiments to kind of put the parameters correctly, uh -huh. your sweet spot's going to be sort of right in the middle uh, of your little graph there. Um, unfortunately, if you're charting unknown territory, sometimes you have to kind of do some some 
you know, guardrail experiments to figure out where do I actually sit in this space? Um, because I've done experiments where it's like, oh, your properties go get better, better, better up to this very point where you maximize both of your your experiments. And I go, ah, okay, well, I got to do another experiment to find out where it falls off. around. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, yeah. So is this something now that you're using, that you, you're starting to use, um, you know, some of these events, data sciences and AI with, or are you still, are you doing it? So, you know, I think um, these are absolutely great tools for this. Um, and this is how I start to teach, you know, my classes. I'm like, look, this is, this is sort of like level one machine learning, right? It is, you're building a mathematical model to represent these things. And we're using linear terms. We might use a couple nonlinear terms, um, but the important part is the interactions. When you start to get into large data repositories, that's when you can start using some of these more advanced models. Um, and, uh, you know, I'm, just starting to kind of figure mm. out what best to do it's it, it can be difficult there's there's a few companies out there that are, are doing some of these things where they will actually you know use machine learning they'll they'll help you formulate something right you've got a complex formulation you've got you know five ten sometimes 15 components going in all at once and you know they don't know where you're at so you might have sort of a starting formulation, you get that, and they'll give you sort of like, all right, here's the the space around that, do these experiments, and then it starts to fill in the gaps, and then they'll give you some more as, you know. So, so giving guidance as to, to the as to future experiments to run, as opposed to saying, you don't need to do this particular experiment because we've extrapolated, which, because the, you know, they're based on, Again, it lead, it perhaps leads to a type of false certainty, right? Well, the, the yeah. machine said it's going to work. Well, well, actually, and that takes us to the next step, right? Which is to to validate, to, val to validate, yeah. validate. IDOV, yeah. identify, design, optimize, and validate. And validate is the most important one. And in fact, um, I joke with uh, my colleagues at Air Academy because um, <laughs> because when I was working on my green belt. Um, I was kind of like Luke Skywalker. Um, I <laughs> I did everything and, um, you know, my, you know, I had my project all put together and my coach said, all right, well, did you do a validation run? You have your model. Did you do a validation run? And I go, um, no. He's like, do you know that your model is correct? Right. Um, does it confirm? And. I, I joke about the Luke Skywalker thing because I didn't finish my my Jedi training, right? Mm. I had all the powers of a Jedi, the the designed experiment, the customer feedback, the decision making process. But because I didn't do the validation, I didn't actually finish my Jedi training. Um, I eventually did. Um, and, you know, they all patted me on the back and joked with me. Uh, and you know, welcomed me into the into the crew, but you know, it, it it it's something that I tell all my students now is like, you know, don't be like me. You know, you're gonna <laughs> feel like you actually do this, but whenever you do an experiment, save an extra run for a confirmation run, um, because you have to do it. 
Yeah, and and you know where I come from, which is biology. Um, <laughs> there's so many variables, right? Um, and and one one experiment's not enough. You know, ten experiments may not be enough. There is a point where you know you you start to to really you know to understand, but um, but it's not it's not as uh, it's not as simple as again. It's about certainty. It's like well, I'm pretty sure pretty sure I got everything right. You don't well get it out there. You really don't know. And absolutely. And and I think, you know, two points to that. Number one is I was having dinner with some people last night and we were starting to talk about, you know, creating, um, you know, products and how does it actually, you know, uh, having multiple avenues to confirm something is awesome. And I said, look, for me, if I can do it, that's one confirmation. That's great. If a customer can do you know, can use my widget um, with my help. That's a great confirmation. But really the the end all be all is if a customer can use my widget without me being there, then mm-hmm. I know I've got a bulletproof product. Yeah, right, right. Yeah, because, and then actually, again, when you know, when you go back to cost for a company that really reduces cost, right? If you don't have to spend as much time on customer support or, or uh, manufacturing support either. But if you yep. think of the plant as being a customer as well, if you're not spending that time and money on doing those things, I'm not saying don't support your customers, but you know, yep. then um, then you have more time and money to do R and D and develop new products and be more innovative. Yep, and uh, yeah. and that's really the the hard part is that you know people are looking at it as an extra cost upfront because you have to do mm-hmm. the the work upfront to get the benefit out the backside. And, you know, that's why DFSS was really implemented by, you know, all of the, our, all of our predecessors, because they saw that existing processes can only get optimized so much. Um, DFSS really tries to, to squeeze the variability before it comes out the door. And that does take time and it does take money. Um, but I have seen that it's, it's, you know, much more effective uh, on the back end. Yeah. Yeah. But the, the, the better it is when it goes into the plant, the better it is when it goes into the hands of the customer. Again, Absolutely. The, the more it frees up time and resources to do other things. Yeah, yeah. I just want I just want to uh, talk a little bit about a um, sort of a, a comparison with lean product development, and and one thing that we haven't talked about yet is um, so the time the the timing of the most critical experiment. So one of the things that we say in lean product development is once you have identified you know what it is that you want to make, what it is that you want to build that might meet the meet the customer needs. Um, there's a there's value to ranking the questions that that you ask. So some of the some of the things that you don't know in order to accomplish the product are going to be things that are easy to answer, or if you don't answer them well, uh, you know may not have a huge impact on the product or the sales of the product. But others are going to be critical. And so one of the things that that um, is emphasized in lean product development is to do the experiments on the critical questions as early as you possibly can. Sometimes you have to learn some other things before you can do those experiments with the idea that you don't take anything into late development that has critical questions 
unanswered because stage gate processes and executives will always want to be pulling things through stage gates, you know, in order to meet, you know, what they told Wall Street or, you know, what they told yep. told the customer about when something would be due, would be done. Right. So uh, and that's how we get products that fail in late stage development or fail on the market because we did either didn't identify those critical questions or we didn't answer them early in the process. And so as you're doing design of experiments, how do you think about that? And how do you decide which ones to do when? Oh, absolutely. And, you know, one of the, the I'll, I'll give you an example. I'll, I'll give you my philosophy first, and then I'll give you a quick example. Um, my philosophy on this is to force your system to fail on the smallest scale possible, mm. right? If If I can do a, you know, a quick failure analysis on a computer, it costs very little money uh, right. to design the widget, to run the FEA and and sort of say, oh, it's going to break here, right? I have just, you know, saved some time on that iterative loop. Um, anytime that a, you know, a product has to go out to a customer, you're increasing the length of that feedback loop. So you've got to be able to figure out how can I um approximate what the customer is doing in the most in the quickest way possible internally because any sort of transaction that's where failures happen that's where time gets gets expended that's where money is spent um but um basically if i can't make it fail on this this scale then we can move to the bigger scale and start the next step and try and make it fail right like i i often sort of joke that uh you know, when people in, uh, uh, meet me at a dinner party or something, I say, you know, oh, what do you do? Oh, I'm a professional failure because <laughs> a lot of what I do is trying to make things fail early so I can discard them. Right. The the example of that is um, I'm I'm working uh, with a colleague on a debondable glue. Right. The the purpose of this is so that you can have a durable product over its lifetime. And then at the end of its lifetime, you can pull it apart, right? Um, our phones, our tablets, a lot of our computers, they're held together by glue. And it's probably the least valuable part of the product. Um, but if we can sort of get rid of, you know, if we can make the glue uh, debond at the end of its lifetime, we can pull out some of the more valuable pro uh, parts of it. Um, and so for recycling, exactly. And so what we said up front is like, look, we have an idea that this is going to debond, right? We have an idea that it'll work. We did it sort of like on a very small scale. And we said, okay, this, this glues some stuff together, kind of, and it debonds. We're going to deal with that later because nobody's going to care about the debonding if I can't stick something together in the first place. So we right. really set the the development part really closely on the gluing part together and now we're starting to work on the debonding because we've got our critical value for our customers and then you know now we're like okay how much do we need to add to to make this fall apart right right because you don't want the product falling apart no. after a year right yep. right it's got it's got it's got to stick right away wow good stuff chris how can people find you um, people can find me um, at uh, geisisventures.com. Um, it's um, G-E-I-S-Y-S, -S, 
ventures.com. Um, I also uh, work on on Design for Six Sigma training and uh, data analysis and coaching with Air Academy Associates. It's A-I-R-A-C-A-D.com. Um, and uh, I'm on LinkedIn. Great, great. And it's K, Chris with a K. It is Chris with a K. That's that's a good point. Uh, K and two Fs if you're looking for my full name. There you go. There you go. Chris, what's your one piece of advice for a young person starting out? I think the best piece of advice I can give people is to stay curious Mm. and don't try to show off your knowledge, right? Like don't make those assumptions that uh, we all make and just say, all right, what are we assuming here, right? Um, because it's the unspoken things that will that will get you. Wow, that's great. And it's so consistent with, with what we've been talking about today. Chris Stokes, thank you so much for traveling with me to the edges of lean. Awesome. Thank you for inviting me and um, appreciate the conversation. It, it helps me uh, think about things and, and uh, just enjoy meeting new people. This is Bella Engelbach, and I'd like to thank Chris Stokes for being my guest at the edges of lean. What did you learn from this conversation? What ideas did it spark? We would love to hear from you. You can find Chris at geisesventures.com or at airacad.com or on LinkedIn. Find me on LinkedIn or at leanforhumans.com or comment wherever you watch or listen. And check out my friends in the Lean Communicators community at leancommunicators.com where you will find lots of great new content every week. The Edges of Lean is written and produced by Bella Engelberg with support from Podcast Inc. This is a Lean for Humans production.